0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, it is a new year, isn't it? Believe it or not, it's a new year. and This new year feels even more significant than past new years in some way. You know, I I remember Y2K. Remember Y2K? That felt like a more significant change of the calendar, right, from 1999 to 2000. And in a similar way, when we go from 2019 to 2020, even though it was just one day that separated those two, it just feels like a sci-fi movie we're living in now, right? But here we are in 2020, and I was thinking about how do we begin a new decade together as a church family, and when I think of even the year that we have in front of us, it's a, a whole series of tomorrows that lie ahead of us, a whole set of them. It, the rest of this year, we have 360, if the Lord gives us that many days, we have 360 more tomorrows just in this year alone. And so as we begin a new year, there's all of that hope, there's all of that opportunity that lies in front of us. But here's the question that each of us are probably thinking about on a day like today. We're wondering where those tomorrows are going to go, where they should go, where should we invest our time, what should be our aim. And when we think about wondering where the most current tomorrow might go, it's helpful for us to think about the ultimate tomorrow. And the ultimate tomorrow, of course, is that one day Christ will come back to the earth. There will be a day when Jesus will be back on this planet. And he will come with justice and with righteousness. And knowing that Jesus is going to come back to this earth one day, if that is the ultimate tomorrow, then, friends, it gives meaning and direction to our each and every day between now and then. I was thinking about that idea this week in connection to this series called Tomorrow as we prepare for the Son, Jesus Christ, to rise again to come back to this earth and I think about Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 on the topic. And Michael Green, a New Testament scholar, reflects this as he thinks about that teaching that Jesus does in these chapters. He says, The return of Christ has another important facet to it, which this chapter underlines. History is going somewhere. It is not meaningless. It is not random. It's not eternal. There will be a real end just as there was a real beginning. And at the end, we shall find none other than Jesus Christ. If knowing that this world is not going to go on forever and ever like this, if knowing that one day we will spend an eternity somewhere and our entrance into that eternity will be resting upon how we respond to the person of Jesus Christ who we will meet at that time, doesn't it make sense as we think about our most future tomorrows to think about that ultimate tomorrow? Jesus provides instruction about the end. And he provides that instruction in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And over the next six Sundays here at Wildwood, we're going to look at those two chapters to see what Jesus had to say about that ultimate tomorrow and ultimately how we might respond in light of where this world is headed. So friends, let's look at these verses together. I want to begin by reading uh, the first section of these verses that we're going to look at, which is chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. I'll read them for us, and then we'll spend some time going back over them in more depth, uh, seeing a couple of different things this morning as we begin our look at tomorrow, preparing for the sun to rise. Matthew 24 beginning in verse 1 says this, it says, Jesus left the temple and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Friends, in these 14 verses today, I want us to see two things about the ultimate tomorrow and its implications for our lives today. The first thing I want us to see is this, the old is gone. The old is gone. Now, where do we see that? We see that in Jesus' conversation with the disciples about the temple. And this conversation is found in the first two verses of the section that I just read. Now, in order for us to adequately understand this, we need to remember the context of Matthew 24, and so we need to allow our eyes to float back up the page, back into Matthew chapters 21, 22, and 23. And if you were at Wildwood last fall, you know we spent a number of weeks looking at those verses together. In Matthew 21 through 23, what we see is that Jesus enters Jerusalem in that triumphal procession on Palm Sunday to much celebration. But after he enters, he goes to the temple and he has confrontation after confrontation with the religious and the political leaders of Israel who reject him as their Messiah, who reject him as their Savior. And because the political and the religious leaders of Israel rejected Christ, he offers a woe upon the nation of Israel, a series of woes upon the leaders of that nation. And we see that in chapter 23. At the end of those woes, Jesus makes... This statement in verses 38 and 39. He says to them, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What Jesus was saying in that statement was, because you have rejected me, religious and political leaders of Israel, because you have rejected me, Judgment is going to come upon the nation of Israel. And that judgment that will come will ultimately leave the nation desolate. And I will go away from the nation of Israel for a season until a time of repentance has come. That's what Jesus is saying in those verses. Now, after Jesus makes that statement, and he makes that statement in the temple area, he walks out with his disciples. And his disciples are taking all of this in. And they look around and they see not just the temple building, but the temple complex. It was a set of buildings. And it was a very impressive set of buildings. You know, for a thousand years, Israel had had a temple area where worship had had occurred. But in the recent time, just before Jesus' ministry began, Herod the Great had gone through an extensive remodeling and expanding of the temple area. He had enlarged the top of the mountain where the temple was, and he had built a very impressive set of buildings there that were something that drew a lot of pride for the nation of Israel. And so Jesus is giving this statement about how the nation will be made desolate, and he's giving that statement in a place that looks like the nation is prospering where the temple is one of the wonders of the ancient world, where people are traveling great distance just to see it. Jesus says that the nation will be desolate, and the disciples are looking at the temple complex, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're remembering what he said, and they they just say, Jesus, do you see what is around you? Look at this building. This does not look desolate to us. This looks impressive. It looks permanent. It will go on forever and ever. I mean, think about the the building that was happening there, the expansion that Herod was working on. It had begun in 20 B.C. It would not be completed until 64 A.D. That means that it was an 84-year construction project. Some of you are remodeling a kitchen or a bathroom, and you think that a couple of months is a long time. Just imagine 84 years of construction. Elaborate, gold, expansive huge rock moved to make the pride of the nation of Israel. They look at this building and they don't see how it connects with what Jesus just said. And so they just say, Jesus, do you not see this? It doesn't look desolate to us. And so Jesus responds and he lets them know. He goes, hey, do you see this? And they're like, yes, Jesus, we see it. We're asking you about it. You see all of this, how impressive this is? Jesus says, because of the nation's rejection of me. The nation will be made desolate, including this building. Not only that, but as a sign of the desolation that is coming, not one stone will remain stacked upon another. You won't even be able to come back to this spot and tell that it was ever here because it's going to be dismantled to that degree. Well, when the disciples heard that, they had to think, this is mind-blowing. How does a building this big, built with rocks, some of them weighing as much as a jumbo jet, how does a building that big get destroyed? But even more remarkable, the fact that Jesus prophesied it, is that it actually transpired. In 70 A.D., the Romans came to that area of the world and put out a, an uprising. They get so angry with the people in Jerusalem that they give an order to absolutely tear every stone down from the temple complex. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, you would see a retaining wall. We know it as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. You might have heard it referred to. That that wall was not the wall of the temple. It was the wall, the retaining wall, that supported the platform on which the temple sat. The Roman soldiers pushed the stones of the temple off of that plateau created by that retaining wall down onto the streets below. This picture I took just this last spring and what you see there is a street from the 1st century, a street that Jesus would have walked on. Do you see at the end of that red arrow the divot that is created there in that street? That divot was created from stones pushed from the top of the temple at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus prophecy that the temple would be destroyed actually came true. Now, if Jesus said that they would be laid desolate because of the rejection of him, the question you might have is, how come it took so long? How come it took, if Jesus' death and resurrection was at 30 AD, how come it took 40 years for this destruction to come? Well, I don't know for sure, friends, but let me just give you a theory. The theory is this. God still was pursuing the nation of Israel, For 40 years, the apostles were to go. Where did they begin their ministry? They began it right there in in Jerusalem and in the Judean countryside, proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world, proclaiming the, the resurrection of the dead as verification of that, inviting the nation to repent. God gave them time, but they continued to persist in their rejection of their Savior. And so in 70 A.D., the desolation comes. Now, with this desolation, there was an end of an era. There was an end of an era. And what was that era? It was an era that we might know of as the Old Covenant era. The Old Testament describes this era, but it was a a time when God had a special relationship with not all people or people from a number of different nations, but where God had a special relationship with one nation, the nation of Israel. The events of the Old Testament describe that for us. And the nature of the relationship that God had with Israel that was celebrated and commemorated inside of that temple was a conditional relationship. Deuteronomy chapter 28 describes this relationship this way. It says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, God says to Israel, if you faithfully obey, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and shall overtake you. And so the story of the Old Testament is this conditional relationship between God and Israel where God said, if you obey me, I will protect your borders and I will give you food and I will give you water. But if you disobey, the consequences will come. This is the story of the Old Covenant era, the story of the Old Testament time. But inside of that Old Covenant era, there was a hope. And that hope was that one day a kingdom would be established And this is a hope that was prophesied by the prophets from God to the people of God, to the nation of Israel, that one day a kingdom would be established upon the earth where God would come to dwell with his people and all would be set right. And so there was a hope and an expectation for a future and a coming kingdom. But how would they know when the old covenant era ended and when the, whatever the the kingdom or the new would come? Well, God gave a prophecy about that, describing the events when the old covenant era would come to an end. And that prophecy was given in terms of a clock or a calendar, and was given in the book of Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 26. And in that prophecy, what we see is a description of the events that will lead up to the end of the old covenant era. Daniel 9 says this, in order to properly understand this, we need to know that the word week just means a set of seven. How many days are in a week? Seven. So these are sets of seven, sets of seven years. It says, 70 sets of seven years are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. In other words, There's an end to the Old Covenant, Old Testament era. And that end would be when these things would take place. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sets of seven years. Then for 62 sets of seven years it shall be built again, meaning the city of Jerusalem, with squares and moat but in troubled time. And after the 62 sets of seven years, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, in this statement by Daniel, we really have a number of remarkable things that are mentioned. First of all, there is the beginning of a clock that would lead to the end of the Old Covenant era. And that clock would begin when a decree would be issued for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Now, last fall, Bruce preached on the book of Esther. Books of Esther, the book of Nehemiah, they all took place during a time when God's people were in exile, far away from their home country. But there was a decree that was given, the book of Nehemiah talks about it, for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And what this passage lets us know is that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and from the time that the decree was given to rebuild the city until the anointed one, the Savior or the Messiah would come, would be a period of seven sets of seven years and 62 sets of seven years, a total of 483 years. And so from the time the decree is given to rebuild the city, there would be a period of 483 years before the Savior of the world would come. That calendar, friends, is fulfilled when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover on the days before he offers his life as a sacrifice for our sins. It's a remarkable prophecy. It shows the clock, the timeline that would lead up to when the anointed one would come. But what's remarkable about that 483 years is at the end of that time, what happens to the anointed one according to Daniel's clock? He would be cut off. What happened with Jesus when he came to the nation? They rejected him. He was cut off. And and with that rejection, the clock stopped. The clock stopped. Remember, 70 sets of seven years. We have 62 plus seven. That's 69 sets of seven years. And at the end of that 483 years, the clock stops. There's still seven years remaining. But those 483 years from the Nehemiah proclamation until Jesus comes to Jerusalem, gave a timeline for the end of the old covenant era. Now, what happened next? Well, rather than the clock immediately starting again, a new covenant era developed. The era that you and I have lived in, the era that has dominated the relationship that God has with his people over the last 2,000 years. And this new covenant, this New Testament era, is an era that is actually based on superior promises than the old covenant era. God has given an upgrade. And part of that upgrade is it's moved from God's relationship with one nation to God's relationship with all who would come to him in Christ. The book of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, when it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Friends, we live today in an era after the old covenant has ended, but before the kingdom is fully established. We live in this era But we live in this era based on better promises. Now, what are some of those promises, and why is it better? Let's just think about this for a moment as we compare the Old Covenant to the New. Remember, the Old Covenant is the Old Testament and the conditional promises that God gave to the nation of Israel. The, The New Covenant is what we have opportunity to access to God through the work of Jesus Christ. One thing we need to know is that the Old Testament, we don't just throw it away. It's a a document that contains the history of God's relationship with his people. And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can see the character of God come through clearly as we look at the Old Testament truth. But the nature of the way that we relate to God is based on a new covenant, not an old statement. And that carries with it a number of implications. What are some of those implications? One of those implications is that we no longer offer animal sacrifices. There's a lot in our Old Testament that talks about animal sacrifices. You ever wonder why we don't do that? Why do we not kill a lamb at Passover? Why is that something that's no longer a part of our worship? Well, the reason why is because we live in a new covenant based on a better promise. Not offering an animal as a shadow of what would come later, but looking back at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who offered his life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. It's a better promise, amen? Not only do we not offer these animal sacrifices anymore, but we also are able to eat things that the Old Testament said don't eat. You ever wondered why we eat bacon? I had bacon for breakfast today. When I had that bacon for breakfast today, I'm I, I, thinking to my head, in my head, this is a better covenant <laughs> based on better promises, right? The dietary restrictions that are listed in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, are removed. It's not about just the externals, but there's an internal change that God has done in our hearts and in our lives. Not only that, but the physical family tree situation that we see inside of the Old Testament, why do we see all of these family lineages listed in the book of Chronicles and other places in the Old Testament? It's Because the family tree mattered so much at that time because you were a part of a covenant community. You were part of the nation of Israel. It was important to show that you were born to the right family. But in this new covenant age, God is not addressing you and I wondering if our parents are from the, if we're from the right family. The only qualification is are we embracing what God has offered us in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a better covenant based on better promises. Amen? You come from a family that has worshipped another God or worshipped no God at all. There's hope because in Christ it's possible. There's a new covenant. There's a new way. Not only that, but in the Old Testament you'll see things like David praying, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's, that's conditional statements. God would send his spirit to rest for a season and then remove it with disobedience. When we think about our lives today. The blessing that we have in Christ is that the Holy Spirit has come to reside within our hearts and lives forever in a permanent way. It's a better covenant It's based on better promises. Friends, when that temple was destroyed, it was not just the end of a building, but it was a reminder of the end of an era. The old was gone. But not only do we see that the old was gone, we also need to look at the reality that the new has come. The new has come. And friends, we see this in verses 3 through 14 when Jesus is going to talk about the future events that will transpire, when the clock will start again. You see, the disciples see all of this, and they hear Jesus' comments about the temple, and they, they want to know, they, they, they want to know, they say, Jesus, when will your kingdom be established? When will that happen? When will the clock start again, and you'll establish your rule from this place? we want to know. Is it going to be like on Tuesday or on Wednesday of next week? Because we want to make sure we've got it on our calendar. That was their expectation. They thought it's got to come soon. They wanted to know. And Jesus responds and lets them know, and we'll see this in the the verses that we we read earlier. He, He wants them to know that it wasn't going to happen immediately, but that there was going to be an extended period of time that would happen before his kingdom would be established upon the earth. Friends, this idea of this extended period of time was hinted at inside of Daniel's calendar. We read before verses 24 through 26, but verse 27 of Daniel lets us know that, remember that last set of seven years? He, he lets us know that there's a future seven, a future set of seven years that's going to happen at the end of this current era in which we live, which will usher in the time of the kingdom. He lets us know that, remember, 70 sets of seven years are decreed about your people. Then verse 27, and he shall come, make a strong covenant with the many for one set of seven years. And for half of that time, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, that's a mouthful. But let me just quickly summarize what I think he is saying. What Jesus is, is, or what what Daniel is saying in this prophecy is that there will come a time where a covenant will be established with the nation of Israel by one that we would know of as the Antichrist, using the language of the book of Revelation, for the protection of Israel. And when that covenant is signed to begin that protection of Israel at a yet future date, the clock will begin again on that last seven-year period. And I think what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24 is he's describing the events of that last seven-year period. He's he's letting the disciples know, hey, I'm not coming back Tuesday or Wednesday. It's at a yet future time, and there's a number of things still to take place. And he he details what some of those things are. He talks about there will be false Christs who come. There will be those who rise up and try to distract the people of God and walk them into another way of life, another perspective on the world, another way to salvation. Jesus said that that's going to happen in the time leading up to the end. Verses 3 to 5 let us know that. He says there's also going to be wars and rumors of wars. In verse 6, they're going to happen upon the face of the earth. There's going to be famines and earthquakes that happened on the face of the earth. Verse 7 lets us know that. And not only that, but there's going to be persecution of the people of God that's going to be very intense. And then he says this, all of those things are but the beginning, verse 8, of the birth pains. In other words, just as an expectant mother, when they feel a kick of the baby, it reminds them that a baby is coming. And when the intense pain of delivery begins... It reminds them that something is getting ready to happen. Jesus says that there are kicks in this age in which we live that will remind you of a one-day beginning of the end, but there will be an even more intense time that is still yet to come. I think what Jesus was saying was we we live in a time where there are false people who are falsely trying to lead others away from, from God. We're aware of that, Right? and that there are are wars in the world today. There are famines in the world today. There are earthquakes in the world today. There are believers who are persecuted in the world today. And I I think that those events are like the little kicks that remind us of a need for something more to happen in this world. But Jesus, I think, in these verses, because of what we see in Revelation chapter 6, he's saying that there is still a yet future time, when there'll be an even more intense, closely connected set of events that will be even more leading people astray, even more wars and rumors of wars, even more famines and, and earthquakes and persecution that will be even more intense. And it will all precede the return of Christ to the earth. Now, when Jesus gives this statement and he talks about how there's A place where all of this is headed. He doesn't just say this so that they would have their minds tickled a little bit. Hey, here's something so that you could win Bible prophecy trivia night at the next gathering of disciples. He doesn't give it to them for that reason. As a matter of fact, Jesus gives them this information because he wants them to order their lives in a particular way now. And we're going to see that as this series goes along, but I want—I don't want to leave this passage without pointing out two applications that we can even have today in light of the ultimate tomorrow. The first of those applications has to do with persecution. Jesus spends an extended amount of time talking about how persecution will come upon the followers of God. Because they follow Christ, they will be rejected by those around them. And Jesus even is very real, and he says, because of that persecution, it's going to have an impact on my followers some of them will turn against one another and they'll be real complainy towards others inside of the church. Some will, will, will walk want to walk away from the truth. Some will see their, their passion for Christ grow cold because of the opposition they're facing from the culture and the world around them. And Jesus says in the midst of this, he says, don't let that happen to you. Even if we're just in a time of little kicks and not of the ultimate labor in the seven years before the return of Christ, we we live in a time where persecution is around us, and and let us not be ones who allow that persecution to push us away from the God that we love. Jesus lets them know that those who maintain integrity, that those will be saved. I don't think here he's talking about their eternal salvation, but I think what he is saying is if you persist, in faith in me, in the face of persecution and opposition, you will be rewarded. And we who are here today, as we face in persecution and opposition in our world, may we also be ones who maintain integrity in following Christ. Don't be taken surprised by the opposition that comes your way. The second application I think we see from this is found in verse 14. In verse 14, what we see is a a proclamation that in this time that is the end when these intense pains are coming upon the earth and wars and earthquakes and all these things, even in that era, God will have a witness for himself proclaiming the gospel, giving people a chance to repent. And it won't be just located in Israel because God is working with the entire world at this point. It will be a proclamation that is given to all people from all nations, and God will get that message to them, I believe we see in the book of Revelation chapter 7, by a group of Jewish missionaries who will be going out into all the world proclaiming the gospel. Even in that time that is the end, God will be sending out a missionary force inviting people in the face of his judgment to repent. Not only that, but there's going to be air support to that ground game. And that air support is going to be angels flying in the mid heavens. Revelation 14 lets us know, proclaiming the gospel in all the nations, that people would have an opportunity to repent. Friends, it is God's desire that we would all repent of our sin and turn to the provision that he has provided for us in Christ. And if that's his desire in the end, I think it's his desire for today too, right? And so we who live today, who are followers of Christ, we have the privilege of participating and helping to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for you, that that might be in part reaching out to those in your neighborhood or on your sports team or on your dorm floor or in your family and inviting them to follow Christ with you in 2020 and beyond.